0: From ethereal beings to handsome leading men playing ghosts, most of us have some concept of what a spirit is. One of the most common ideas is that spirits haunt and generate fear. While many popular depictions of spirits are frightening or evil, the spirit of spirit communication is generally benevolent and comforting. It's an affirmation that our loved ones who have passed on are watching out for us and are able to provide information, insight, and guidance. And at this time of year, when the veil is thinnest, spirit is often on our minds. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, October 22nd, 2018, and today for 42 Minutes, we're going to discover the power of synchronicity and the methods that connect you to the loved ones in spirit. Of course, first, I think I need to break in and talk about this whole endeavor a little. So what the heck is going on here at 42 Minutes? Regular shows for a bit and then nothing? You take the whole summer off and then drop off for a month? Times are indeed strange, and I'm trying to understand the nature of my sync work for sure. For a long time, I was committed to the idea of a weekly podcast. At this point, I think that aspect is less important so long as the quality of the content remains. And I do have a lot of high quality on deck. So subscribe to the podcast. It's going to keep coming. But know my practice is in flux, and I'm trying to determine the best way to share my sync. Right now, the book club gets an earful about once a week. It used to be that I would put that kind of stuff into a blog post, but now I feel like I should be trying to funnel it into fiction. My writing practice really has gotten the short end of the stick since the inception of this podcast back in October of 2011. Anyway, bear with me as I figure out my creative expression, but know that I'm never going to stop reading and digging into interesting stuff. You know, beyond strange stuff. True tales of alien encounters and paranormal mysteries. Just in time for Halloween. Today, the program reconnects with Trish and Rob McGregor on their fourth visit to the show. These prolific writers shared a chapter in 2012's Sync Book Volume 2 and then appeared on 42 Minutes twice in 2013 and then again in 2016. They both have written a number of interesting fiction and nonfiction works, and we'll link to their various websites, their main one being Synchrosecrets.com. Rob's most recent book, which just came out this month, is called Tulpas, and Trisha's newest work of fiction, called Skin Shifters, arrives tomorrow. Collaboratively, Secrets of Spirit Communication is their latest book in their series of synchronicity and paranormal works. Hey guys, how are you doing today? That was a nice introduction. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, so, for whatever reason, uh, the synchronicity that has kind of been coming at me is this idea of Florida, and uh, it just seems like Florida has risen to prominence for for several things, both political and environmental, um, I'm not that familiar with Florida. Have you guys lived in Florida your whole lives? I've
1: lived here since off and on since '63, so I've seen a lot of
2: change here. <laughs> I first came here in '73 and then, or '72 and then left in '73. But then I came back in '81, uh, and I've been here ever
0: since. And so and we're ready to move. It, <laughs> <laughs> well, after all these hurricanes, yeah. It's so you guys. Uh, was it Irma that affected you guys?
1: Yeah, we really got pummeled by Irma. Right, we had
2: leaks in four of our rooms. Uh, had to replace the roof.
0: <laughs> and were you in a place where you had to evacuate? You know, we, we considered
1: it because we're, we're 15 miles inland, but at the time we had two dogs and two cats. And my, my nightmare would be getting stuck on the Florida Turnpike going 20 miles an hour and running out of gas. And we had friends who did evacuate, and it took them 18 hours to get to to the Georgia line. And it's a trip of maybe eight. Everybody driving north, uh, that was the only way to go. And uh, so there's
2: just, just solid cars on the turnpike all the way up to the, the state.
0: So is there main one freeway, or one main freeway that runs from the southernmost point of Florida up to the northern? Well,
1: there's two. There's two, I-95
0: and the Turnpike.
1: And supposedly the Turnpike is the faster, but (laughs) that was questionable during the evacuation. What they did at the Turnpike is
2: they they closed the... uh, You couldn't drive south, and they opened the whole thing up, and everyone driving on all the lanes heading north, nobody going south.
0: And then how close to you... Specifically, did the eye come of the, of Irma?
1: Well, fortunately, I mean, if, if the eye originally was supposed to come up the East Coast, which if that had happened, we probably wouldn't have a house. But as it was, it, it stayed longer on the Cuban coast and made the turn later. So yep. that basically saved us. Yeah, it was
2: originally predicted for 175 mile an hour uh, hurricane winds to hit the East Coast of Florida, but then... Just a day or two, it started shifting further west and uh, went up the Gulf Coast. And so we got hit, but not as hard as we would have been.
0: But now that was the same year that, uh, let's see. So Puerto Rico was Maria. really... Yeah. Yeah. So didn't Maria, Puerto Rico, two weeks later. Yeah. Boy. Uh, yeah.
1: And that was a really
0: awful storm.
1: You know, it was, uh, that was like... Well, I don't know if it was like this Hurricane Michael. I, I think that Hurricane Michael was actually a Cat 5 when it hit the panhandle.
0: But that's and not just, anywhere I mean, near you guys, right?
1: No, no. It's northern Florida.
0: And, God. and so that that's pretty unusual as far as things go for hurricanes to go in, in that area? Is that what I'm No, to...
1: I mean, every every place is vulnerable, especially along the Gulf or the eastern seaboard. But that was unusual and then it formed fast like within two days it went to a cat four and then it kept strengthening as it approached the coast and became a cat five i think (laughs) and the, the
2: the route for it uh took it right up uh into georgia and the carolinas so what people did is they actually turned around and came into southern florida so there were people driving in the other direction uh usually you escape the hurricane by driving north from South Florida, but uh, this time people from Northern Florida were driving South. So that was odd.
1: Yeah, but but listen, they say there's no climate change. It's a lie. (laughs) There is.
0: Okay, so that's where I was going to head, but I'm just for my own... Yeah. Uh, so I can grok this. I, you know, living in Idaho, I'm so far away. Like as a child, it's like, well, what football team do you like? It's like, well, what's the farthest one away? It's like, <laughs> I like the Miami Dolphins. But so driving from the southernmost part to the northernmost part, is that what do you think? Is how many hours is that, or in terms of miles? What well, is...
1: in terms of miles, I don't know. But in terms, if you go from Key West to Georgia. It probably takes between 10 and 12 hours. When you say, um,
2: I think even more than that. I think it takes 11 hours, right, from uh, Palm Beach County to get to the. Okay, it's
0: long. <laughs> okay, all right. So, and then the Panhandle. When they talk about that, that's that's uh, the most narrow part in the in the northern top.
1: That's the Gulf Coast, right? You know, as it turns okay. up towards you know the Gulf, Alabama, New Orleans.
2: Yeah that little handle on the right west part of the state. It's really part of Alabama. The people are very uh, southern. And actually, the, the sense of the people being from the south comes all the way down through northern Florida, almost to central Florida. And then as you go further south, people become more northerners, uh, actually, which is strange because uh, there have been... There's been more migration from New York and the northern states to South Florida rather than to the North Florida. Okay. So we don't hear them in South Florida very often.
0: You just reminded me of a writer by the name of Vandermeer, who I think lives in Florida also, but what do you know, like Area X, I think. Are you familiar with that series? Area
1: X. I don't think so.
0: Uh-uh. I... Okay cuz I think so it's it's more science fiction but it's definitely uh set at some place in Florida so I, I was just curious but anyway uh Probably South Florida Speaking of hurricanes in your work beyond strange I think it came out in 2017 you speak about a couple who are on vacation and now I forget where they're at but they they visit a place And it's only later that they realize that that place was destroyed in a giant hurricane in the 1700s.
2: Take it away, Rob. (laughs) right, okay, this is a story that uh, came about uh, when I was with my co-author, Bruce Gernan, investigating the Bermuda Triangle for our second book. Uh, We wrote a book called The Fog about the Bermuda Triangle and Bruce's experience as a pilot in the Bermuda Triangle. After, that was in uh, 2005 and then afterwards we received all kinds of emails from people who have had unusual experiences similar to Bruce's where they had uh, some jump in space and time and oftentimes the, uh, we, we found that these were not uh, actually taking place in the Bermuda triangle but were sometimes even over land and so we ended up deciding to write a a second book called Beyond the Bermuda Triangle which talks about the Bermuda Triangle but also these other experiences but uh, the experience that you mentioned takes place on the island of Bermuda and this is one of the strangest ones that uh, I encountered because it started when we heard from a man who had been in the Coast Guard in the early 80s I thought it was the 60s um... Yeah, I think you, maybe you're right. Yeah. In his 60s, right? And he was stationed in Bermuda. And he and I, it was a Thanksgiving weekend. It was actually Thanksgiving day. He and his buddies had Thanksgiving dinner on, on the Coast Guard cutter. And then they came ashore. Uh, and he was with three others. And they happened to meet four young women who were Navy nurses. Uh, they had just uh, hopped on a uh, Air Force plane to, to uh, Bermuda and just were staying there for two, three days. And so they, uh, they met, and it was kind of a synchronicity that there were four guys and then four young women uh, all around the same age. They gave them a tour of the ship, and then they kind of paired up. And the guy who wrote us, I can't even think of his John. John John. <laughs> John. John uh, and... Sandy
1: was the... I can't remember her name. I
2: think her name uh, is Barbara.
1: Barbara, uh, that's right. Sorry, yeah. Very good, Doug. <laughs> you got this story. <laughs> from
2: memory. So they went off on their own, walked along the beach and towards this old fort, and they sat on the wall of the fort and watched the sunset and just talked about their lives. And both of them were involved with other people, but they, they just... Uh, he, John felt very comfortable with her and she felt very comfortable with him, almost as if they're old friends. It was very odd. They had just met, but uh, they, it, it was almost like they knew each other. So then as the, they left, as the sun was setting, they decided to go back to town and they, they see this little path leading uh, up this hill and they decided to follow it to see if that route took them back to the town because it was heading generally in the right direction. So they're, they're walking along this path, uh, heading up the hill, and John says, there's going to be a little village on the other side of this hill, uh, an old British village. And Barbara says, yeah, and there's, there's a church in the center, in the square, and that, that church has a clock on it. And I can't remember which one it was, John or Barbara said, and it's stuck at 1230. And they both laughed because they were just kind of making this up as they were walking along. They come up to the top of the hill, look down, and sure enough, in the dusk there, there's this little village. And so they walk down into the village, and they, they come to the square, and there in is, is the church. And they look up, and there's a clock on the church, and it's stuck at 1230. So they're amazed by this. They're looking around, and they go up to the church, and they John grabs the door and tries to open it and rattles and shakes it it doesn't open. They look around there's no people that 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 they can see. everybody's inside it seems there are lights in the houses, but they're not, they're not electrical lights they're uh like kerosene lamps and so they walk around and they, uh over to the cemetery adjacent to the church and sit on another wall there and start talking. And then Barbara has been to the beach with her friends, and she's got a blanket with her in the big bag she's carrying. So they spread out the blanket and they uh, sit down on the blanket in front of this wall. And for some reason, they know that this, what this cemetery is about. There's a uh, there's a break in the middle, and they say, well, that's the the blacks were buried on that side, and the whites are buried on that side. They don't know why they know that, but they just seem to know it. And so John is starting to feel very amorous uh, towards Barbara and he reaches out for her, gives her a hug and they lay back down on the blanket and boom, he passes out. She passes out. They just like fall asleep. And then two hours pass and they wake up and realize that uh, they've got to get back. She's got to get back uh, to meet her friends. The village is still there. They look around. And they're very they're kind of confused and John's kind of embarrassed. Why did I fall asleep <laughs> at that <point? laughs> But she did too, and so they uh, they pack up and walk out of the village. And he says goodbye to her because she's leaving the next morning. And they exchange addresses uh, so they can stay in contact. He's very interested in her, and so that seems to be it. So. A couple of days later, he has shore leave again, and he, he wants to now go back to the village. And He write.
1: also had a dream that night before he went back. Yeah, I don't remember. That, that. was, you know, he, he, in the dream, I mean, it was about the village, and that's when he decided he wanted to go back.
2: Right, and he wanted to go there and write her
1: uh, a letter
2: and a, maybe a poem because he was uh, feeling very much like he wanted to stay in touch with her, and he wanted to relive the experience he had with her in the village. So he go, uh, He traces his way back and looks down to come to the village. It's just a field. There's no village. Nothing there at all. And he's just am I in the wrong place? He thinks. He looks around. He, no, this is where it was. There's no village here. So he's very confused. He goes back into the town and goes to the local bar, orders a drink, and uh, then he talks, there's an old guy behind the bar, and he says, do you know anything about a, a village that used to be near here in that direction? And a guy looks at him and says, yeah, Fort uh, Fort Catherine. St. Catherine. Uh, St. St. Catherine, used to, yeah, the fort is named Fort Catherine. The village was named St. Catherine. It used to be uh, there, but that was destroyed with the great hurricane of 1780. And it was never rebuilt, and so now he's he's really baffled, and uh, he starts to leave, and the bartender says, "Hey, if you want to find out more about uh, Saint Catherine, there's an old uh, sea captain who lives here, and uh, he had relatives that lived in Saint Catherine, and he's sort of the historian of that place, and he gives him a tell them how to find find the captain, but the captain is in England at the time, and it's not." He's not back for several weeks, and so John goes off, and so he finally comes back. The ship comes back to port again in the the following April. So he he goes and looks up the captain and finds him home, and so he tells the captain he wants to talk to him about Saint Catherine. The captain is kind of puzzled why this American guy wants to talk about his uh, ancient relatives in that that village, and but he he says uh, he. he says oh i 'm a, uh, a sailor like yourself uh, uh, the coast guard and so the captain invites him in and he starts uh, talking with him about his past and he he has two paintings and of his great great i don 't know how many greats are but great great grandparents <laughs> great grandparents and John looks at the picture and the the woman looks identical to Barbara and he's talking and it turns out the name of the the two ancestors were John and Barbara so this really blows his mind he's uh one of the things that I didn't mention in describing this story and how John felt. he felt that he and Barbara when they were in that village that they had lived there he mentioned that to her he felt like they had lived there and had a family in the past and uh when I I followed up and talked talked to Barbara as well she doesn't remember that part, but she definitely remembers being in that village, and she agrees with John's description. Now they they lost they were in contact a while, but then she wrote him a a, a, a literally a dear John letter. She couldn't talk to him anymore because she was getting married. So it, decades went by, but then finally, with the internet, made it easier to recon, recontact with um, people, and he was able to trace her down and find her and left her a message on the phone, and hours went by, and he thought he'd never hear from her. Then she called him, and he said, Do you remember me? Do you remember going to that village? And she, she said, Yes. We sat uh, on the the wall of the cemetery and uh, saw the church there. And so he, he felt great relief that this hadn't been all his imagination, that this other person actually had experienced it as well.
1: So it's a very. It so it's as if they walked into the past, a past where they had both lived and had a family, and both of them had died there.
2: Yeah, and the interesting thing is that uh, she, uh, the Barbara, the uh, the ancestor Barbara, had been uh, nine months pregnant, and she had died, and they found her on that hill. A midwife found her and cut out the baby, and the baby survived. And that was the old captain's great 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 grand, uh, I think it was the, the grandmother, uh, and so that's where the trace is. That why that uh, while everybody else died, uh, he was the child who had uh, survived because uh, of that of that midwife, and that was his connection. Uh, so that's a, so it's like this connection over uh, centuries, time and uh, centuries. So it's a fascinating
0: story. Back to hurricanes. I wonder, having been, lived in Florida for as long as you have, I mean, my perspective is hurricane season is this awful news time where it just <laughs> it just seems like there there's a, a window and they're coming and they're devastating and that happens every single year and it's just unpleasant. But I wonder living there, what it's like, and then if it feels like it... it the risks are higher and that it, um, the devastation is higher, and, you know, what is your experience? It's stressful. Yeah? It's stressful.
1: Yeah, I mean, as June 1st, you know, things are going to start ramping up fairly quickly, and usually by, you know, August, September. Irma was September 10th, I think. And, you know, it's first of all, you're stressed out because everybody rushes to the grocery store, rushes to Home Depot. You find that everything's been cleaned out. Then it's stressful because you have to put up your shutters or however it is that you protect your house, bring in the animals. I mean, it's just, and then afterwards, if you don't have power, like after Wilma in 2005, we didn't have power for 10 days. These poor people in, in Puerto Rico haven't had power for months. You know, it's like the dark ages.
2: So when I first moved to Florida, I lived there for years and years and never experienced a hurricane. So I never really thought much about the, you know, the, the season that much. I knew it was the hurricane season, but I hadn't experienced it. But then after I met Trish and met her father, and he was, I remember he was always very concerned. He said, oh, it's June 1st, and now the hurricane's <laughs> time of year, he would say. And then... Uh, then I experienced Andrew, and I, I started to understand what that was all about. How devastating these hurricanes can be. And uh, uh, but you know, sometimes they just hit an area like uh, like Andrew hit Miami and Homestead very hard. And the next day uh, we were
1: 30 miles north, and uh, it was no, we were farther. Than- uh, 30 to 40 maybe 40 maybe 50. <laughs> anyway, Andrew had a really small eye right. that's what saved us.
2: But uh, we were you know, it was just a nice, beautiful day the next day for us, but the people down, not that far away from us were living in the street and living in parks uh, because their homes were destroyed, so it's, uh, and it was just just devastating. We went uh, down there weeks later, and the devastation was still horrendous.
0: The interesting thing I note is that at the, in the beginning of Beyond Strange, you talk about an experience you had, Trish, when your daughter was born in 1989, and it was another time slip thing where the way oh right it was written, your daughter is communicating <clears throat> to you from the future and telling you about how things are. Do you have any sense, oh, yeah. explain that a little bit, and, and where do you think she was in time? I, You know, I, it, this is so
1: strange. I mean, I was in a ward with three other women. Um, Megan was a day old. So they brought her in about one o'clock for a feeding, and then they came and took her back to the nursery. And so I laid back down, and I clearly heard somebody call my name. And it was so clear. I sat up, but all the other women were asleep. The door was shut, you know, the, Nobody was there. So I lay back down again, and it happened a second time, and that's when I felt it was an internal voice. So I said, okay, whatever this is, who are you? (laughs) And I had a clear image of a woman about 40, 45 years old who was Megan. And she was saying, I need my birth information because all of these records have been destroyed because of – she didn't use the word climate change, but that was – the idea, you know, the environment is basically destroyed. And so I gave her the information. She thanked me. And that was it. In the years since then, I, I've grown to wonder if maybe it was my granddaughter who I don't have yet. <laughs> um, but it, but it, was, it, it was shocking. And so from that day forward, I always made sure Megan had her birth time. She knew all the stuff about where we were living, you know, all the information she had asked for.
2: Yeah, and maybe you're right about it being the a granddaughter because uh, Megan obviously knows her birth information. Right,
1: yeah. Uh, she knows her she has her chart. <laughs> next
2: generation if something happens, uh, you know, that information might not be so easily available.
1: And also we had another weird experience, Doug. it was like another time slippage. One night back in the early eighties before Megan was born, a friend of ours who was an artist and a psychic said, Let, let's do a little Experiment here. I'll progress you guys to say the future. We won't make it any determined future, just the future. And she had this really great hypnotic type voice. And so as Renee was talking and she's, you know, relaxing us, I all of a sudden saw myself as a very tall, bald woman living in a dome because the environment was toxic. And the weird thing about this, a couple of years later, I found Chet Snow's book. I can't even remember the name of it it was It was a book that Helen Wambaugh started, and he finished and Helen apparently had regressed twenty five or progressed twenty five hundred people in Europe to the twenty first century and asked them what the living conditions were and There were three scenarios: the dome was one of them hmm. so be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, get your dome now. <laughs>
0: And so your daughter, Megan, was she born in 1989? Is that a? Yes, she was. Okay. Because, yeah. I mean, it is interesting because I think the New York Times just did, I think 1989 was the year that they really started thinking about this seriously as a problem. Like it made, I think there was a big report, you know, some guy standing on the Capitol steps and saying, the right. water. the water will be this high. So.
1: Yeah, I vaguely remember that. But, you know, nobody knew words like climate change. I mean, it wasn't a, like it is now. Yeah. And that Chet, Chet Snow book, I believe, was named Mass Dreams of the Future. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So. And he also saw people living in the space station. And there was another scenario, like caves or something. Yeah,
2: yeah, Well, there was one there, people were kind of going back to nature, living a very uh, basic life. And then the more technological one, where people are in uh in space, and then the one where the the bad one where they're the, living in domes. <laughs> it's not maybe not so bad for the people inside the domes, but not for not very good for the people outside of the domes. yeah
0: well, speaking of like time slippage or time travel, you also mentioned Rob that you were on the way to a dentist one time, and all of a sudden you were in a different part of town yeah,
2: yeah that that and he wasn't doing drugs i I, <laughs> I thought about that story today because i drove right by that place it's uh it's a it's a medical building that has a kind of gold colored dome uh and i had once taught, taught yoga to the uh one of the doctors who works in there so he had told me where he had worked and uh, so I, the story was I was driving along 441, a uh, thoroughfare, heading towards Home Depot, and the, the traffic got slowed. And uh, I saw, I looked at the dome. I just had this voice in my head say, "Pay attention to where you are and what time it is." I was, not, I, no, I wasn't going to Home Depot. No, I was going to the dentist. But I would go past Home Depot to get to the dentist. you in that direction. So I, I looked at my watch and I uh, looked at the dome uh, building there, and I drive on. And suddenly it should be kind of open territory and undeveloped territory uh, land around the uh, 441 there, but there was a lot of trees and houses, and it didn't make any sense to me. And then I come up to an intersection, and I realize wait a minute, I'm like five, six miles away in the other direction. I'm coming up to Southern Boulevard now. Uh, and actually, I, I was heading towards Southern Boulevard, but miles down the road. And so I'm totally baffled by how I got there. I mean, it, if I had, tr- I looked at my watch again, and hardly no time had passed, like a minute or two. So it was impossible for me. To say, well, the traffic's long, and make a U-turn and go back. And it, it, I wouldn't have done that because I would have been way late for the dentist appointment. Oddly enough, I still arrived on time <laughs> but from the other direction. <laughs> and so it is very uh, uh, confusing that uh, how I suddenly seem to have jumped in uh, space and time.
0: Okay. Well, so you end you end beyond strange with this idea of maybe science will catch up. Someday, so like you invoke science, and then in thinking about your newest collaborative works, secrets of spirit, spirit communication. I'm wondering where your heads are at these days with the, with the idea of like synchronicity and forces that we don't quite understand yet. But then, uh, thinking you know about more than just. Paranormally, you know, like, where where are you guys at with synchronicity and stuff these days?
1: Well, I mean, I I think synchronicity is probably the language of all this stuff, you know, from spirit contact to these time jumps to, you know, seeing precognition. I think it's synchronicity is part of all this, and the, the closer you pay attention to to the synchronicities and try to understand them.
2: Yeah, I think spirit contact is synchronicity. Um, it reveals uh, the reality of a greater consciousness in which uh, everyone and everything alive, both in the physical here and in the spirit world are interconnected. In fact, uh, Victor Mansfield wrote in synchronicity science and soul making that we live in a radically interconnected and interdependent world. One so essentially connected at a deeper, uh, at a deep level that the interconnections are more fundamental, more real, than the independent existence of the parts.
0: And so then synchronicity is is, is like a, 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 another force, like gravity or, you know, one of these laws of nature, do you think? or
1: If you go to quantum physics, I think, you know, where David Bohm talked about how that basically our day-to-day life is the un- unfolding of this deeper order, the deeper order he called the implicate order. And, and we live in the explicate, and
2: synchronicity touches on the, uh, on the border of the two, it, uh, it's a bleed over from the implicate that we can experience because it, in, it doesn't, it involves two things, similar things coming together, but without uh, cause and effect. And it's whatever the, that experience is, it's meaningful to the person who experiences it.
0: But the interesting thing to me is that oftentimes there's an emotional content To these things, and so that, like, even the story about the couple, Barbara and John, you know, yeah, they the 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 thing the threat is is that they had this deep personal connection, and that may you know, right. So they were drawn together to this place, and then remembered potentially this past life that they shared together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the emotions are really intricate to the whole thing. You know, it's not, it's not an intellectual exercise. Maybe trying to figure out the message sometimes is an, an intellectual thing. But but the experience is emotional.
2: Uh, Trish, you should talk about
1: the experience
2: with uh, Anne Streber that we had, that synchronicity from the other side. Yeah,
1: that, that was really weird. Um, in 2015, Willie Streber lost his wife, Anne, mm-hmm. And I think it was on August 11th. And on the 12th, I heard about it, and I was writing him an email. And I, I said, I want you to know, and as soon as I wrote that word, there was a tremendous explosion in our family room. We both shot to our feet and ran out there figuring that, you know, the TV had blown up or something. It sounded like an electrical transformer but, when it blows. And our, our
2: offices are just adjacent, both of them are adjacent to the family room, and it seemed like right outside
1: of our offices this huge explosion. And it startled our dog off the couch, you know, so it was a real thing.
2: Yeah, and but yet they was nothing, you know, we checked the television, it worked fine, and the, the lights were working, and uh, we found nothing had fallen over and crashed. I mean, it, it was uh, just this
1: explosion that happened right at that, at that point. So I wrote Whitley, I, when I finished my email, I wrote him right back. I said, okay, just as I was writing, I told him what happened. And I said, was that Ann? And So he writes me back, and he says, it sure as hell was, she's stirring up things in the spirit world. But you know, the experience was just so strange.
0: It reminds me of a couple inst I think you, you guys even note this. Things that happened to Carl Jung, like with there was a ex- right. with Freud, there was an exchange that happened twice, I think. Right. And then also like a, a famous instance of like a a knife breaking or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, in his kitchen. Yeah, I mean, he had a number of, I guess, telekinetic experiences. I don't know for <laughs> what else you would call them. Telekinetic or telekinetic. Yeah. Yeah,
2: we're, uh, and, and they seem to relate to emotions. Like he was in an mm-hmm. argument with Freud, and uh, Freud was putting him down for believing in the, the paranormal the psychic uh, phenomena, and he was feeling very upset when uh, he suddenly predicted... Uh, no, he, there was suddenly this explosion in the bookcase, and then he uh, he said to Freud, there, "See that?" And he, he had some uh, explanation for it. I can't remember. It. And then he said, "It's going to happen again," and it did. And he said, it's going, to, watch, "It's going to happen again," and it did. You know, and and the amazing, I, I've I've read uh, a description of this from uh, skeptics who 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 try to explain that <laughs> as as something rational that happened. Uh, so I can't remember what exactly they say, but. Uh, there it's there's a tendency to uh dismiss it <laughs> uh skeptics the uh, hardcore debunkers to sound pretty irrational in their explanations of the paranormal
0: well so what about this idea that um so clearly there's going to have to be some kind of revolution in science so that people are open to this you know if you're closed there's no way that we can even consider the paranormal, but I wonder as writers, you know this artistic there is this creative element where you're you're open to new dimensions and then you let it flow through you I wonder I wonder about that and your own experience with synchronicity, if there's any connection in your minds.
1: Okay, let me tell you why I don't write about hurricanes anymore in my fiction. Hmm. I wrote a book called Storm Surge. I think it was for Hyperion. This was in the early 90s. And it was about a Category 5 hurricane that hits South Miami. It was named Alfonso. And the whole story centered around the approach of the storm and the devastation afterwards. I mailed it off to my editor. In those days, it was still snail mail. Uh, And the day I mailed it, the system was forming off the coast of Africa that became Hurricane Andrew. And so many, there were so many parallels between Andrew and the storm in my book, and I thought, okay, never again am I right about hurricanes in fiction. Because obviously, through, through the creative process, I tuned in on something yeah. that was coming. So in 2004, I guess it was, 2005, I wrote a book called Category 5. <laughs> That that knock at the door came again and said, hey, how about this idea? So I thought, okay, it can't happen again. So I wrote Category 5. It was published in September of 2005. I think it was September. Yeah, it was. Well, whenever it was. Whenever Hurricane Wilma came in. And all of a sudden I get this call from a publicist saying, listen, people are clamoring for information. About hurricanes, we're going to book you into a bunch of radio shows, and I thought, my God, my book's not even out yet, <laughs> you know, but that's what I did. I did about fifty radio shows, and category five was very similar to to Wilma. No, it was Katrina, I'm sorry, it was Katrina. It was either Katrina or Wilma so i don't I don't write about hurricanes anymore. <laughs>
2: Here's a little synchronicity right here that just happened to me. I I just turned my head and looked over to the bookshelf, and uh, I haven't noticed this book for a long time. And I'm looking down, and there there is the sync book. You know.
0: Oh, <laughs> your book. <laughs> Funny.
2: I haven't noticed that. Book in a long time. It's on the bottom shelf. It's got a number 26 on the. Uh, 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 cause, okay, let's see. Oh, t- uh, featuring 26 authors on synchronicity. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, c- oftentimes I do ask about writing practice. I'm just curious, you know, from a nuts and bolts standpoint, do you guys write every day? Do you write when you're inspired? Is it, uh, I, I mean, to be as prolific, you must write every day. T- can you explain that a little bit?
1: We write every day.
2: <laughs> uh, Trish is uh, a little more into it than I am. She's uh, working on a script right now, and uh, I'm uh, working on a, a book that we have uh, coming out. Uh, it's, uh, I have a novella in the book and uh, a short story, and Trish has uh, several more short stories. It's, uh, I'm just going over that now. And so, yeah, we, we work every day, basically, in uh, one capacity or another. And then often, like, uh, what's interesting that we... Write both nonfiction and fiction. Is there's bleed throughs, there's stories that we hear in the nonfiction that are sometimes a little difficult to write about because they're so strange, but they work very well in fiction. In fact, there's one uh, story related to out of body experiences that uh, I wrote about in this novella called uh, Spinning Out. Uh, it started with a man who
1: wrote me uh About his experiences in the out of body state and then Robert and I did a short story about two people who are disabled who meet in an out of body state
2: yeah so th- so we have these bleed throughs from the non fiction to the fiction so it's it 's like a uh, research for our fiction sometimes, and you know is this guy Telling the truth, you know it doesn't matter in the fiction whether the guy was telling me the truth or not i mean he seems i don 't know why he would contact me this former police uh officer and tell me about this out body these out body experiences he, he's had, but uh, he did, and uh, i'm still in contact with him and uh he's he's upset now he's in his mid fifties and he's having trouble getting out he just says he just kind of hovers next to the bed but he can't get get moving anymore out on these experiences uh, we we encounter some interesting people
0: and then so that's what you guys are working on now is another collaborative book
2: we rarely do uh, collaborations in fiction, but this is this is one that we did. In fact, uh, didn't uh, Millie predict that we would do something like yeah, that?
1: Yeah, I think she did.
2: And I remember you saying, uh, saying, well, we never do fiction together. Yeah. And it turns out we did in terms of short stories. Uh, yeah.
1: They're all outlier stories. So yeah. The book is called The Outliers. Yeah, the book is called Outliers, and we
2: should be coming out sometime later this year or early next year.
0: Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, thank you for having us, Doug. Thank you. It's okay on your show to talk about weird stuff. We like that. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. You've been listening to Trish and Rob McGregor on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out their website at synchrosecrets.com for more information about the SyncBook. Our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at the syncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all. The SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And the experiences we consider beyond strange happen to ordinary people going about their lives and involve events that mainstream science would consider impossible.
3: We had no limits that summer. The sky could be falling But we'd always have each other I was lost in you to